Just a heads up, this episode, inevitably, contains outdated and offensive language in reference to the LGBTQIA community, so please use your discretion. On this season, we'll be covering our vehicles of hysteria, how pop culture and the media shape our psychology and society, and how our national mythologies manipulate the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I think television now is overrun with bad taste and bad manners. The Jenny Jones Show ambushed this defendant. There was a serious thrill in staying homesick from school as a kid in the 1990s. Your parents gone at work, you home alone in a slightly dizzy wonder of fatigued possibility. Still in pajamas, body strewn across the couch, you might click through the daytime channels, click past the low-budget lighting of goofy soap operas, click past an infomercial for incredible kitchen knives that cut through cans, past Oprah's quiet concern over any number of various traumas. You know where you're going, to the good stuff, to the glorious shock of sex and just a little violence, the divine mystery of bleeped-out curse words. You're headed right to Jerry Springer's special about a mother-daughter dominatrix team, or even an episode where a man marries a horse. Like America at large, Kids often seek out the most outrageous thing they can find. But back in the heyday of shock talk shows, what was considered outrageous was somewhat different. There are few pieces of popular culture as problematic as what we call tabloid talk shows or trash talk shows or shock talk. There is unfiltered homophobia and transphobia, race baiting, there are slurs, there are cruel questions, and behind the scenes, the producers are fanning all the incendiary cultural coals in hopes that the whole stage might burst into flames. If you've listened to a lot of our episodes, you might remember how TV talk shows have spread hysteria of all kinds. The satanic panic, repressed memory hypnotherapy, sex panics about the lives of teenagers, and any number of quack medical cures. I expected to round all of those up and have a bonked out bonanza of moral panics. But then, as always, the team and I found something different something far more interesting as we researched. This very American phenomenon is often seen as purely exploitative, raking in poor dumb guests that just don't know any better, presenting them as a kind of modern freak show, poisoning the youth with this stupid, deviant, sometimes violent drivel. But what if there's more to it than that? 
in the interest of acknowledging simultaneous truths, we'll be exploring what it means for previously unseen individuals and the groups they represent to be made visible to a national audience for the first time, even if that means being painted as a freak. Instead of just looking at how talk shows affected American culture, we'll also look at the elitist reaction to these low-brow programs and the freak shows of the past that they're often compared to, and ask what, and more importantly, who is considered trash, and what happens, for better and for worse, when the trash talks back. Now, which of these ways would you choose to reveal your secret crush on someone? A, would you write that person a letter? B, would you tell the person in private in case he rejects you? Or C, would you tell that person that you're gay and you hope he is on national television? On March 9, 1994, a 24-year-old man named Jonathan Schmitz went to the front door of 32-year-old Scott Amador's trailer in the small town of Lake Orion, Michigan, and fired a 12-gauge shotgun straight into his chest. Jonathan then dropped the gun and called 911, confessing to the crime immediately. The two men had been neighbors and friends prior to the murder, an odd pair to be sure, the mustached, kind of vulgar and subtly flamboyant Scott, and the handsome, boyishly innocent Jonathan. Just three days before, Scott and Donna Riley, a third friend from their group, were goofing around on a well-lit stage in front of a whooping studio audience, with Scott detailing his sexual fantasies about his friend Jonathan, like tying him to a hammock and licking whipped cream off his body. This episode of The Jenny Jones Show was called Same-Sex Secret Crushes, though producers say they told Jonathan that his secret admirer could be either a man or a woman. But when Jonathan's called onto the stage, there it is, a salacious gay surprise, a favorite controversy at the time, and Jonathan seems to take it in relative stride. He walks out, he smiles, puts his hand to his face, clearly a little uncomfortable, and then he awkwardly embraces Scott as the audience flips their freaking lid. As is customary, Jonathan clarifies to the audience that he is 100% heterosexual, and that's really the extent of the episode, pretty run-of-the-mill for a 90s shock talk show. The subsequent trial would become a media circus and would see defense lawyers laying out their case, which included Jonathan's issues with mental health, but focused more so on the fact that Jonathan had just snapped. He'd panicked at the surprise homosexual advance. In the eyes of the courts, and in fact in the eyes of some state courts to this very day, this is legit and it's called the Gay Panic Defense. And so, it wasn't just Jonathan Schmitz on trial for murder, but Scott Amateur, too, and the Jenny Jones Show, Jenny Jones herself, and trash talk shows at large. In my view, the Jenny Jones Show ambushed this defendant 
with humiliation and in retaliation this defendant ambushed the victim with a shotgun. Because of these defenses, Jonathan became a victim too, and he was instead found guilty of second-degree murder when prosecutors were seeking first-degree, and he was sentenced to 25 to 50 years with the option of parole, released in 2017. Many gay rights groups were outraged at this trial, seeing the moral panic of trash talk shows as a distraction from the real issue of America's dangerous and violent homophobia. But the gay panic defense seemed to convince even the prosecutor who lamented the whole situation, clearly feeling for Jonathan. Three years later, in 1999, a confident and charming Jenny Jones would take the stand on a highly publicized trial aired in its entirety on court TV. It was a civil suit against her show and the Warner Brothers network that owned it by the family of Scott Amateur that claimed that the responsibility for Scott's death fell not only on Jonathan, but just as much on the dangerous situation that her show created. Though the verdict would eventually be overturned, the court found the Jenny Jones show liable in part for the murder, awarding $25 million to the family and sending a serious message to the American public. In a chorus of righteous agreement, some parts of society turned on what had become a booming industry, and the story cemented what many pearl graspers had been breathily condemning, the violence, the exploitation, and most importantly, the deviant personalities who were now spilling out into the real live streets of America. The tradition of the talk show, as we know it today, started with a charming, soft-spoken man named Phil Donahue, whose show would run for 29 years and would lay the foundation for a lineage culminating in the Jerry Springer show. Philip Donahue was born in 1935, and by the 1960s, he'd be interviewing everyone from John F. Kennedy to Black activist Malcolm X on his call-in radio show. When he landed his own self-titled talk show in 1967, it was shockingly progressive considering the tame, conservative television style of the 1950s and 60s. He came out swinging with his very first guest, atheist activist and so-called militant feminist Madeleine Murray O'Hare. He'd continue to bring the nation radical guests and topics like Gloria Steinem on feminism and Ralph Nader on American consumption and consumer rights. He even played a major role in introducing middle-class white America positively to hip-hop and its culture, a moral panic all its own, when in 1984, he televised the first breakdancers on national television, as well as a performance by the hip-hop group UTFO. Eventually, Phil would go as far as to show a live abortion on TV to demystify the procedure, and he would interview an interracial lesbian couple who were trying to get pregnant. 
What first made Donahue stand out was that it was the first show to bring women's voices directly into every topic covered. Phil said that he discovered that during the breaks, it was the women in the audience who were asking good questions, questions way better than he was coming up with, and they were stating intelligent opinions on politics and society. Imagine. Through his work, Phil would eventually come to identify as a feminist himself, pretty radical for a mainstream dude in the 1970s. His style was working profoundly, and his female audience would grow to six million with year-long waits to get that coveted seat on that coveted talk show set. Something I like about Phil Donahue is that his method as the host was pretty Socratic, meaning he asked questions of the guests more than he made his own statements, letting the audience ask questions of the guests too, with the guests responding and asking their own questions back, leading to a kind of democratic town hall vibe. Donahue had a knack for challenging people's prejudices, calmly and respectfully, sometimes even softening their judgments, or at least pointing out their unthinking hypocrisies for millions to hear. But he also was not afraid of heated cultural controversy around political issues and around civil rights. Here's boxer and activist Muhammad Ali on Donahue. Bothering you, you look so. I well, I don't like his arrogance. I think by no, listen, I'm in a minority in this country. I'm from England. Oh, you're minority, you're from England. You own England, you own England and America. You white, you can go anywhere in this city you want to go. Are you from England? You're more free than me. You know, you can go to towns, move in neighborhoods, you can buy things over, you can open a business downtown Chicago, and I can't do it, but you from England. Now, you got some nerve to come over and be mad at me because I'm proud and I want to fight and be confident and get my people to be proud and fight and do. We the minority too. We've been in minority for 400 years. And don't compare yourself with no black man. There weren't many places where an angry Muhammad Ali could go off no holds barred on a racist white woman on national television, if any at all. In what Phil described as the biggest hysteria surrounding any one single episode, he would interview folks we would now call transgender or gender nonconforming, but who were then known by the very outdated terms crossdressers and transvestites. Don't use these words. Later in the show, in a landmark pop cultural moment, Phil himself would enter stage left donning a very cute burnt sienna skirt and black stockings with a white shirt and a fashionable scarf tied around his neck, a nice cardigan completing the look. I'm not kidding, it was a great outfit and he looked amazing. But by and large, his audience seemed pretty outraged and even offended, or at the minimum, very turned off by the display, save for one man complimenting his ass, which did look good. After that, it all kind of became a joke, as did the people on stage. But for them, that was nothing new. For many of the watchers, however, it was not 
funny, and the hysteria came in the form of hundreds of letters and calls to producers, as well as a lot of negative press and amazing ratings. Who do they hurt? Why do we care? They don't hurt anybody, and that's fine if they want to do it. I'm saying that I'd kill my kids if they ever did it. I would never allow it, and I would divorce my husband if he did it. You're disappointed. I'm disappointed that with the country we have today, I think that if God wanted men to be women, he'd have changed it immediately. And I think if a man is a man... But if God wanted us to have clothes, he would have borne us that way. Exactly. Right. Huh? But even skirt-wearing Phil Donahue himself had to grow into his more liberal views. He had to question himself, Donahue style. In conversation with Oprah, who said that without his show, hers would have never existed, Phil admitted his own personal hesitations of the past, saying, quote, I put a gay guy on in 1968, a real, live, homosexual sitting right next to me. I was terrified. As the years went by after that show, I got involved in gay politics, and through my activism, I began to realize what it must be like to be born, to live, and to die in the closet. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Regnetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. Of course, talk shows would get far crazier than Donahue, which now seems so tame in comparison to the programs it would beget. 
When asked about the trash talk shows that permeated the airwaves, Phil remained his non-judgmental self. I'd taken so much criticism for our show, I didn't want to be responsible for criticizing anybody else. So when people would ask me, what do I think of all these other shows? I would say they're all my illegitimate children and I love them all equally. One such illegitimate child was born with a full, luxurious mustache and a tough street style, as he called it, far different from his sensitive, caring Papa Donahue. Nah, he was a man who loved a good barroom brawl. By the mid-1980s, execs finally caught up and capitalized on the Donahue model in a big way, cranking the sensationalism up to 11. This confrontational style continued to mutate, and two distinct threads came from it. First, a softer, Oprah-esque model, often focused on personal tragedy, confession, trauma, and pop psychology, something we're going to talk about at another time. The other thread was a tougher one, more about yelling and insulting and bullying and shock, the fistfights, the spectacle of an all-out battle, no holds barred, between outrageous guests, a tough guy host, and an unhinged audience at large. You know, the good stuff. Jewish Puerto Rican lawyer and soon-to-be reporter Geraldo Rivera, a man originally focused on working with organizations in New York City like Community Action for Legal Services and the National Lawyers Guild, even working as an attorney for the Latino gang-turned-activist group The Young Lords, who you may remember as part of Black Panther Fred Hampton's Rainbow Coalition. After going back to school for journalism and landing a job at Goodnight America, tackling controversial issues like Vietnam draft dodgers and the growing trend of marijuana, he would be the first network television reporter to actually utter the word AIDS, taking a humanizing, empathetic stance that was rare at a time of language like the gay plague from prominent trollish televangelists. But Geraldo would rock it to fame with his 28-minute expose, Willowbrook, The Last Great Disgrace, that aired in 1972 to a shocked America, sneaking into the facility to reveal the profound abuses occurring at a state-run institution for children with mental disabilities. He would win a Peabody Award for journalism and would actually help advance rights for those with disabilities. His career took a somewhat different turn when he hosted the now-famous broadcast special in 1986, The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults. On the show, he led a construction team to open a vault that had allegedly belonged to Al Capone, which Geraldo believed contained cash or even hidden dead bodies. But the dramatic opening of the vault revealed nothing at all, just a few old glass bottles half buried. Nonetheless, 30 million people watched the special and loved it, and they wanted more of this masculine, mustachioed showman. Coming hot out the gate, his new talk show came to conquer the rest, and Geraldo popped out a slew of shock. 
Some of his first episodes were about wife-swapping, male strippers, strippers who kill, cross-dressers, sex workers, and mud-wrestling. Along with others like Sally Jesse Raphael, Geraldo was pushing the envelope much farther than Donahue had. And soon, he would make an accidental discovery about the power of the violent side of reality drama. In the 1988 special, Young Hatemongers, Geraldo invited on two different factions of a rising skinhead movement, a white supremacist neo-Nazi group, as well as a group claiming to be a part of the original skinhead movement that was dedicated to anti-racism and the working class. Also in attendance was Black activist Roy Innes, then the national chairman of the Congress of Racial Equality, and Rabbi A. Bruce Goldman, president of the Center for Jewish Living. What was this, some kind of in-person nightmare thread on Twitter? Geraldo seems to be suppressing at least a little glee as the tensions mount, and he puffs up his macho street style that he's so often pointed to as the key to his success. Geraldo is very much on the side of the anti-racists, or at least on the side against the neo-Nazis, and he verbally spars with John Metzger, who eventually alludes to Geraldo's largely Jewish background by calling him Jerry King. He responds, And I really recommend that you don't push me too hard. Oh, come on. In this moment, Geraldo places his hand firmly on Metzger's shoulder, which some critics have called a deliberate escalation of tension. Less than two minutes later, an audience member approaches the stage, yelling at Metzger, to which he replies he is, quote, Sick and tired of hearing the sob stories from I get sick and tired of seeing Uncle Tom here. When Roy stands up, fists clenched, Rivera coos. Go ahead, Roy, go ahead. Roy walks deliberately, preparing to confront the neo-Nazi, when another skinhead barks for Roy to sit down, which triggers him to raise a fist and tell him to back off. Metzger stands, Roy warns him to and pushes him back down into his chair. After he pushes back at Roy, Roy wraps his hand around his throat and a full-on brawl breaks out between the guests on stage, their bodyguards, the stagehands, the production team, the anti-racist skinheads in the audience who were there to see their friends, and in fact, the audience at large. In a raucous storm of fists and slurs, the production team totally loses control in the truest sense of the word. And though the fight only lasts 40 seconds, Geraldo emerges at the end, bleeding from a broken nose caused by a chair hurled across the room. It was shocking. It struck at the rawest racial chords of America itself. But to most... It was just great TV. The man who would one day rightly be known as the King of Sleaze, Gerald Norman Springer, was born in London in 1944. The child of a shoe store owner and a bank clerk, his parents were Jewish refugees from Poland who were able to evade Nazi capture, but who also had to leave behind Jerry's two grandmothers and a great uncle, all of whom would be killed in the Holocaust. With this shadow at his back, 
Gerald and his parents immigrated to New York City, and in 1962, he would enroll at Tulane University in the heart of New Orleans, and his time there would show him just how pressing the battle for civil rights really was. Admiring John F. Kennedy, he would work as an aide to his campaign after getting a law degree from Northwestern in Chicago. Jerry was aggressively against the Vietnam War, and he was working with the Cincinnati law firm in 1969 to create a referendum to lower the voting age to 18. He became a city councilman of Cincinnati in 1971, and two years later, he'd become the mayor. After a failed run for governor of Ohio, he landed a seven-year stint as a popular TV news anchor, during which he helped move the station to number one in the ratings and won Emmys for things like his investigative reports about droughts in Sudan. Jerry was soon offered his own talk show, following in the increasingly sensationalized Phil Donahue's footsteps, bringing on guests to discuss issues such as racial inequality, homelessness, and AIDS, with episodes covering teenage racism in Florida high schools, interviews with survivors of gang violence, and conversations with political leaders like Jesse Jackson. But to the general public, this was all pretty boring, and the ratings were not very good. The network began pressuring them to get them up right now or get canceled. Producers realized that it was time for Jerry to follow suit, because every time a freakish guest appeared on their show, ratings went through the roof. But they had to stand out. They had to do something different. They had to get more extreme. Many of us remember what followed. The Jerry Springer Show would run for 28 seasons, making over 4,000 episodes with every stripe of American deviance streaked wildly across the stage. His first bangers included My Boyfriend Turned Out to Be a Girl and I Want My Man to Stop Watching Porn and Which Are Sexier, Bigger or Smaller Breasts on Women. Soon we would get such gems as I Married a Horse, Mother-Daughter Domination, Breaking the Sex Record, You Slept with My Stripper Sister, I'm Happy I Cut Off My Legs, and Here Come the Hookers. There were weird shows about incestual couples, fights between little people, and a wide variety of different kinds of scorned lovers ready to explode, which they did. Fighting soon became the norm on The Jerry Springer Show, which has rightly been compared to the theater of pro wrestling, that kind of tongue-in-cheek, campy shock talk that refuses to take itself seriously, constantly challenging the censors, mixing the fake and the real, bordering on satire, becoming a kind of parody of everything else that had come before it. But that doesn't mean that the emotion and the fights weren't real. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. That wasn't the problem that so many were pointing out. It was this deviance on parade, this stupidity, this sorry display of the most pitiable people being exploited for profit, all while making America dumber, disintegrating the moral fabric. At the inevitable onslaught of moral criticism, Jerry said it was all about free speech. It was all about letting American audiences 
choose what they wanted to watch. And by and large, America was choosing Jerry. Though these shows were viewed by tens of millions of people, that doesn't mean that all of America was choosing to view this type of content. Many were instead choosing to ruffle their porcelain brows. In 1989, a group of white men and one white woman staged an hour-and-a-half roundtable discussion about tabloid talk shows, featuring Phil Donahue, Morton Downey Jr., who was another host known for getting into screaming fights with his guests, Larry King, Jack Nelson of the New York Times, and other serious journalists, and several network and newspaper executives. I think we're, we're not talking so much about what's journalism and what's not journalism as what's good taste and what's bad taste, what's good manners, what's bad manners. And I think television now is overrun with bad taste and bad manners. You wrote in one of your columns it was dis- television was diseducating Americans. Yeah, it may be making us dumber. I mean, all the, all the uh, scholastic, t- if that's possible. No, I didn't mean wow. that. <laughs> That was renowned media critic Tom Shales of the Washington Post, who also had this kind of snooty, snotty thing to say in an editorial from the year before. Geraldo, the barrel-bottom talk hour starring dauntless panderer Geraldo Rivera, has dealt in recent weeks with transsexuals and their families, swinging sexual suicide, mud-wrestling women, Charles Manson, Serial killers, kids who kill, battered women who kill, and, of course, male strippers. So, transgender people who have families were the first on the list of these American perversions, coming before serial killers, before Charles Manson. Shales, who would win the Pulitzer Prize for his cultural criticism that very year, followed up with this lovely condescending statement. Donahue remains the most frequently substantive of the shows, but this week, Phil flounced around in a skirt for a peek at cross-dressing. Around the same time, Democratic Senator Joseph Lieberman and conservative activist, Secretary of Education under Reagan and enormous war on drugs fanboy William Bennett began working on what they called the revolt of the revolted, as they so charmingly put it. Interestingly, both men had found recent success in their pact together, pushing Time Warner to drop all gangsta rap artists from their label. These hosts like Donahue, Geraldo, and Jerry Springer, who each have their own pretty impressive history in progressive politics, often pointed out this elitism, this pearl-clutching of intellectuals, the judgments they placed that seemed based in class, that seemed based in the same prejudices that permeated America. They were just doing it with good manners and with good taste. When you look at it this way, the audiences of these talk shows skew toward working-class black and white audiences, with Jerry Springer holding the number one spot for years. Around the same time as this roundtable discussion, critic Martin Kitman, writing for Newsweek and CNN, said, quote, The scariest thing about the show to me is the studio audience chanting Jerry, Jerry, 
mostly yums, young urban males and misses as unrestrained as ever. This human zoo is a lot funnier than most new network sitcoms. <sighs> it's telling to me that he would use language this specific in reference to freak shows, with human zoos usually displaying black people and other people of color as animals, as monsters, as only half-human, and as profoundly unintelligent, as we cover in detail in our episode called Monsters. The freak shows that existed from the mid-1800s up through the mid-1900s are often compared to trash talk shows. And like talk shows, they were a deeply complicated and nuanced place. They could promote profoundly racist and white supremacist views through their human zoos. And of course, they also invited the masses to gawk at abnormal individuals at a hefty profit for the showman. But at the same time, it was also a venue for the previously unseen, like those with physical disabilities as well as gender nonconformists. The bearded lady is the most famous example, and hermaphrodites, in this case simply those who the audience couldn't classify as explicitly a man or a woman, were some of the most popular acts, and they were met with wonder. One such freak, going by Albert Alberta, either had a medical condition or was just an early genderqueer who knew how to woo an audience, which is a specialty of ours. Albert Alberta, who used male pronouns, would work out one side of his body only, with the other half shaved either with a real breast growing from that medical condition or, in other reports, a fake one filled with birdseed. Either way, the crowd freaking loved it. More after this. And now, back to the show. When we look back at freak shows, the most common refrain is, How sad. Look at these poor people being exploited by a showman so he can get rich off their pitiable abnormalities. But freaks were also known to pickpocket the audience, give incorrect change, and gouge them to hell for cheap souvenirs. Often, they had a good deal of control over their acts and made pretty decent money, and a handful even became rich, which was a really big deal when there weren't a lot of career opportunities for folks like this. Despite the obvious truth that vulnerable people were being exploited for profit, Many of them had a lot more agency than we like to remember. And maybe they don't need so much of our pity, but maybe they need our respect. So, similar to their reaction to shock talk shows, the highbrow community of the 1920s hated freak shows, even calling them lowbrow trash specifically, something for uncouth poor people to do. But the term highbrow actually comes from phrenology, which is something we cover in detail in our episode on quackery. At the time, doctors actually believed that the shape of the skull determined everything about a person's personality, health, and the value of their genetic stock. 
The higher the brow, which they conveniently claimed was a natural feature of wealthy white people, the smarter and more worthy the person was considered. Lowbrow, then, of course, meant the opposite, and usually referred specifically to people of color, poor white people, people with disabilities, and gender nonconforming individuals. Phrenology helped fuel the popular eugenics movement of the time, with upper-class Americans quite charmed by the idea of creating a perfect race of smart, affluent white Americans. No trash allowed. The freaks of America wouldn't be closeted anymore, nor would they be put on vulgar display. Instead, they'd be used for medical experiments or tossed into asylums for their own good, for the good of medicine and science, or even bred out of the culture entirely. Now, whether we like it or not, minority voices are often heard first through exploitation, through lowbrow entertainment, through the lucrative nature of sensationalism that those considered deviant have always been able to provide. The more outrageous a person is, the bigger the spectacle, the more people pay attention. And during the 80s and 90s, gay and gender nonconforming activists knew exactly how to work this angle, no matter how painful it was. Activist and writer Michelangelo Signorelli recalls, quote, Our philosophy was that we don't have the luxury of saying no to these people. You're given a very tiny window. You try to push that little bubble of information through the window before you get interrupted and do it in a way that seems entirely relaxed and calm. In some cases, activists actually haggled with producers in order to control at least some of their appearance. As told in our amazing primary source text, Freaks Talk Back by Joshua Gamson, Geraldo was doing a transgender wedding episode, and a trans woman and activist named Linda Phillips, who was married to her cisgender wife, Cynthia Phillips, used the term male lesbian to try to explain their unconventional relationship to the clueless producers of the late 1980s. Linda and Cynthia knew that this phrase, male lesbian, would be all that the aggressively puzzled audience would be able to focus on, but it was just too juicy for the producers to let go of, so they offered a trade. The salacious buzz phrase in exchange for the chance for the couple to publicize a book written by their friend about the emerging transgender community and their day-to-day life. Linda and Cynthia reluctantly agreed, and a large banner stretched across the TV set that said, MALE LESBIAN, in all caps, several exclamation points. And at the end, they got their short minute to share their resources. After taking all the shame-slinging in a pretty tough stride, they saw results. After each rerun of the episodes that each of these different activists appeared on, they would receive dozens of phone calls from all over the country asking for more information, hoping also to be seen. In Jerry Springer's autobiography, Ringmaster, he includes at the end some of his favorite final thoughts, those wrap-up moral diatribes you may remember. 
This one is about a trans woman named Brittany who had gotten her lover pregnant. Quote, Like most people, I had difficulty understanding this issue. I mean, I guess I always knew what gender I was. If I was ever confused, a quick look in the mirror after stepping out of the shower would remind me that, in fact, I was a man. I looked like a man, felt like a man, and was attracted to women. It's never been an issue. But there are those of no less moral value than the rest of us who from birth on just aren't that clear. Their genetic makeup has left them confused when it comes to gender, and their choices are simply to suppress it, deal with it, or, in the extreme, medically change it. He goes on to talk about, regrettably, the confusion her new baby will feel over living in a home where, quote, dad's mom, or is he? And he says Brittany shouldn't be selfish and should stop dressing as a woman, lest it cause the child undue judgment and pain. But at the same time, what Jerry said is a pretty nuanced take for gender nonconformity for mainstream 1997. (sighs) Simultaneous truths. In the case of the Jenny Jones murder, it would be easy to blame the show for their ambush tactic, for this exploitation, for their lack of ethics and responsibility in a time of frothing homophobia. But at the same time, gay panic and trans panic have always been symptoms of the closet, of being made to stay in the shadows, with Jonathan killing Scott 30 years after Phil Donahue was terrified sitting next to a real, live homosexual. But Netflix docuseries Trial by Media revealed this clip of Jonathan's father's testimony during the murder trial, illuminating the underlying messages he had been receiving his whole life and even a direct instruction to essentially make Scott Amateur disappear. He called me in Brewski's bar. He said, uh, that thing didn't work out very well in Chicago for me, Dad. He said, uh, he said uh, it was a guy. Did you ever discuss that he was very conflicted in his relationship with females? Absolutely. Because he had lots of conflicts with lots of females. But it had to do again with the girls. I want you to know that. Girls. Yes, sir, I know. Okay. Not any guys. Girls, no guys. Not any guys. That's right. Absolutely not, sir. No That's guys. Right. right. When he finally did call you after the show had been taped, you made it pretty clear to him in that phone conversation you were angry. And in fact, you said, gay what? Bastards. Sure that's all you said? I, it was something, it was an expletive of that, whatever. In fact, what you said began with an F and ended with an S, didn't it? Yes. And you threw a chair, didn't you? Yes. Explain, please, why you said that John had to kill Scott to prove he was not a homosexual. You said that the overwhelming humiliation that he would have felt that everybody thought he was a homosexual. Right. How would you feel if somebody thought you were a homosexual? And that's exactly what you communicated to your son, John. Right, sir? I was embarrassed. He was embarrassed. So it seems like this gay panic didn't come from that cheesy episode about secret gay crushes, but more from a legacy of American homophobia, the terror of the hidden homosexual, the hidden transgender person, 
And of course, the terror of people thinking that you could be one of the freaks. Now, although talk show history includes plenty of cruel jeering, the reinforcing of dangerous stereotypes, and any number of dehumanizing jokes, there were also moments like this, no matter how ridiculous, how campy, how probably fake, that did carry a different tone. This one, starring one of the most freaking gorgeous, amazing genderqueer people I have ever seen on TV to this day. Uh, so what's, oh yeah, what's going on? Uh, it's my best friend in the whole world. Oh. It's my best friend. Oh. Absolutely, without a doubt. The only person who's ever respected me the way I respect myself or want to. If you don't mind, I'd like to use this opportunity to like say something to him. Sure, go ahead, please. Please. Nobody else but you. Uh, so Jerry, 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 Jerry Springer, he let me come on national TV to tell you all uh, uh, you, uh, you mean to me. I don't want nobody, baby. Will you marry me? Can't believe you did this for me. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Uh- same time that the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation was actually working to create an official training program for their talk show guests, former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, David Duke, was claiming that getting white supremacists on talk shows helped increase their numbers, too. And some of the publications of these groups actually explained how to best use this mainstream platform to spread their message. It also worked, and they apparently received dozens of letters after each of their episodes re-ran, asking for more information. On one appearance on the Sally Jesse Raphael show, a self-described doctor and white-collar racist came out dressed well and sat there speaking calmly, telling millions of Americans that, quote, it's time that the white race thinks about themselves. He also said that he never turns down a talk show invitation. Here's another final thought from Jerry Springer on an episode featuring guests from the Ku Klux Klan called Clanfrontation, after he explains to the audience his own familial relationships to the horrors of the Holocaust. Admittedly, these people are crazy. Their racism unlikely to be taken seriously, hate mongers dressed up like clowns. And yet there is a point to be made here. Though they can be dismissed for being loony, Their message, if ignored, can too easily become a growing cancer in our society. It was the white and educated Europeans who came over here, slaughtered the Native Americans, brought blacks over as slaves, made discrimination against them legal till only a few years ago and through the middle of this century. Surely, most of us dress better, speak in politer tones, and appear far more cultured. But remember... Some of the most horrific things ever done to humans were done by the politest, best-dressed, most well-spoken people from the very best homes and neighborhoods. Trash talk shows, in all their clumsy contradictions, 
did two things here in terms of visibility for white supremacists. They allowed them a venue to speak to millions and gain more members. And they also revealed to us what was often under the hood. Regular, everyday Americans you'd never notice walking down the street, giving us what feels like a very prophetic prediction for where we find ourselves today. Throughout creating this episode, something kept striking me. A sense that this dynamic, especially like the one created on that skinhead episode of Geraldo, is playing out constantly, almost infinitely, in the sphere of social media. The majority of people in America have at least one profile, and for the first time in history, our posts and comments can potentially be heard by a national or even global audience. Like talk shows, we've seen how the internet can mercifully bring people together through visibility with others like them, and those communities can grow into entire movements for recognition and for civil rights. But there's another side to the same coin, that slow, steady, quiet radicalization that also occurs in the recesses of social media. All of us are egged on in ways we don't even realize, by our own producers raking in the advertising money our never-ending outrage provides. And the more extreme the account, the more extreme the person, the more people pay attention. Beside the most extreme examples of talk shows, these men allegedly marrying horses and these alleged mother-daughter dominatrix teams, there are true small windows for individual people from unheard groups to speak for themselves for the first time in ways that matter tremendously on a national stage. Small windows of words that can change the course of our society in dramatically different ways. Gone now is that Donahue model of questions. Our political threads devolve into brutal, cruel arguments, digital fistfights that now spill out into the real streets of our cities, into real fistfights and much worse. Events we film and then watch on the internet and discuss again as a raucous audience, cheering and jeering, writing editorials about the cheering and jeering, or even claiming that the whole spectacle was fake. This explosive trash talk show stars millions of us now, and all of us are simultaneously exploited and empowered caught in the catastrophic cloud of a massive cartoon catfight. All our freaks slowly revealed, for better and for worse, as we sensationalize ourselves out of the shadows and into the bright lights of this crumbling American stage. But now, as we've seen, the production team has lost control. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we'll be talking about Disneyfication. Also, make sure you join us next week for two different interviews, one with Alyssa Bennett 
historian of bad behavior and co-host of the C-Word podcast, as well as Miles Gray, co-host of the Daily Zeitgeist and 420 Day Fiancé. We'll be talking about the merits of trash TV. My favorite. If you enjoy our show, I encourage you to become a patron. You'll even get a whole second podcast called Walk With Me, where you can go on walks along with me to different places and with different people. And it's a softer show, not so much about American history, but more about the investigation of the self. So head to our Patreon. You can find the link in our show notes. We also still have some of our merch available. And if you haven't seen our design, head to AmericanHysteria.com. I think you're really going to like it. It's pretty freaking rad. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by Trash King, Chelsea Weber-Smith, sound design by Clear Camo Studios, co-research and writing by Riley Smith, with voice acting by Will Rogers, and produced by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And remember, one person's trash is another person's desperate coping mechanism. Have a great attempted coup. I mean week. I mean help.